Season 3, Episode 6, Trump Subpoena Midterms. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis concerning the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. I'm Scott Kuhn. In this episode, we're going to catch up with some of the news ahead of the midterm elections. We will catch up with the latest numbers of arrests and sentencings and other processes going on in the D.C. District Court. I'll also do a defendant profile. Then we will quickly review the Oath Keepers case, the developments there, and I'll describe the sentencing process in federal courts generally, and the question of whether judges on the D.C. District Court are lenient toward January 6th defendants. And then I'll talk about the kind of action that we need to see on the ground as election deniers seek to undermine electoral democracy in the name of election integrity in the midterm elections, which for them, of course, apparently seems to always come down as seeing every vote cast for a Democrat as illegitimate and every vote cast for Republicans as legitimate. And I'll spend a little time looking at a particular Republican House nominee in my district, the 4th Congressional District of North Carolina, Courtney Geals, who has a surprising connection to Trump and the election denialism movement. Finally, I'll spend the last segment of the episode doing a deeper dive into the subpoena from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack that was issued to Donald Trump, and why I think Trump's attorneys are probably sweating bullets at this very moment because the subpoena itself suggests a list of ten possible charges against Donald Trump that may soon be referred to the Justice Department. But first, of course, let's start with the numbers. It's been a couple of episodes since our last tally. So here they are, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 901 individuals charged, an increase of 16 since the last tally. There have been a total of 404 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 460 convictions, an increase of 22 since the last tally. And 304 sentencings, an increase of 25 since the last tally. So, a modest increase in the number of arrested defendants, keeping up with a bottleneck in the D.C. District Court level. But they do seem to be clearing spaces on the docket now, because once again, sentencings are outpacing new arrests. So, they seem to, if they wanted to anyway, do a flurry of new arrests, it looks like there's, there's room on the docket any day now. Now, before we get to the defendant profile for this episode... I'd like to talk a little bit about sentencing. On October 27th, Albuquerque Cosper Head of East Tennessee was sentenced to 90 months for initiating the brutal assault against Officer Michael Fanone. Head was the man who dragged Fanone into the mob from the tunnel attack where he was attacked by Head's co-defendants. You may remember Head from Season 1, Episode 8, The Worst, in which I came up with kind of a top 10 list, but it was more than a top 10 list because 
Some of those were multi-defendant cases. And of course, Head's case was a multi-defendant case. So I included in that list, I think there were two or three, um, you know, in my arbitrary ranking at that point as, you know, the worst actors in terms of violence on January 6th. And, um, yeah, we've seen, you know, those people get some of the worst time. I think, yeah, I believe it was Thomas Webster, who I assigned as number one. I think he's actually gotten the most time so far. And my basis for that, actually, at the time, was mainly that he was a law enforcement officer, the eye gouger. Um, but also, since he went to trial, it turns out he got the most time so far. Now, Head got six months less than the government's recommendation of 96 months. So, seven and a half years in federal prison instead of eight. Now, arguably, you know, that's a real sentence. And it's in keeping with the kinds of sentences that have been handed down for felony January 6th defendants recently. So, last week, the Groyper uh, Christian Secor was sentenced to 42 months for the 1512 obstruction card charge. Uh, the government had asked for five years, um, but, you know, before Judge McFadden, he got 42 months. To my mind, still a win, right? At the end of the day, despite him being an utterly reprehensible person, Secor wasn't convicted of a violent crime, so 42 months in a federal facility seems like a reasonable outcome. He's still going to be a felon for life, and therefore unable to possess firearms, which of course is something that to date he had had, right? So most of the recent sentences have been for misdemeanors. But the recent felony sentencings include a number of noteworthy defendants that I've mentioned on the podcast before, and they've been getting serious time. So you have Lucas Denny of the North Texas Patriot Boys, who was sentenced to 52 months for AFO. Kyle Young, who got 86 months for AFO, uh, again, related to the same uh, charges against Mr. Head. Thomas Hamner, who got 40 months for obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder. Marshall Neef, who got 41 months for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and AFO. Neef's co-defendant, Charles Smith, also got 41 months on the same charges. And, of course, Timothy Hale Cusinelli, who got 48 months for obstruction of an official proceeding and four other counts, and who is reported to the FCI at Fort Dix, New Jersey, with an expected release date of June of 2024. And so, of course, there's always the question, is there equal justice in these cases? Are the sentencings appropriate to the offense, especially given the threat to electoral democracy in the United States? Now, I think some of people's outrage is directed at these light sentences, um, mainly because of our experience with the misdemeanor defendants. But among felony defendants, we are at last seeing real time being awarded, as I always suspected they would be. Um, there's some confusion, I think, about the process and what it means when defendants are given less time than what the government has requested. 
I think that some of this is based on the expectation that the government always gets its way, prosecutors always get what they asked for, and some of that I think is based on what we see in these police procedurals on television. We expect judges to go with what the prosecution recommends. But at its heart, this is fundamentally a comparative question. In order to understand whether judges are being lenient, you have to ask, compared to what? If we think judges are deviating from what the prosecution wants at sentencing in January 6 cases, we also have to have some baseline idea of how often the government gets what it wants at sentencing overall in non-January 6 cases. Now, surprisingly, this is actually an understudied issue. There's not been a lot written on the subject of how often government uh, prosecutors are able to get what they want at sentencing and how often judges uh, you know, deny that, basically go with something else. Some of this is due to the problem of case selection. In order to really study this issue, you have to be able to control for the problems in case selection. But it's rare to find cases that are very similar. Uh, you have problems with maybe different conditions changing over time, right? It's not necessarily universal. Different facts of every individual case, different charges, differences between defendants. So it's a problem of even finding apples to compare to the apples that you already have. Now, fortunately, there is a, a good article newly available on exactly this subject by one Adam Gershowitz entitled The Myth of the All-Powerful Prosecutor, which, as always, I'll link to in the show notes. Gershowitz argues that, quote, conventional wisdom about prosecutorial persuasiveness at sentencing appears to be based more on lore than data. It feels like a Star Trek reference. To date, there has been no study analyzing how often judges actually follow the sentencing recommendations of prosecutors. End quote. And of course, Gershowitz sets out to do exactly that. Now, he was able to find a relevant set of cases in the federal system by selecting 130 convictions for cases of distributing opioids between 2015 and 2019. And the way he selected his cases overcomes a lot of the problems of finding comparable cases. In his data set, the defendants are all physicians, all accused of the same crime, and it's roughly the same time period in history, a relatively compact four-year span. So that effectively gets around a lot of these apples-to-apples problems involved in case selections, where you have, you know, usually it would be a diverse set of defendants with a diverse set of crimes. So what he finds is this, quote, Judges often rejected prosecutors' sentencing positions by dramatic margins. In 23% of cases, judges imposed a sentence that was half, or even less than half, of what prosecutors recommended. In 45% of cases, judges imposed a sentence that was at least one-third lower than what prosecutors requested. In short, prosecutors lost most of the time at sentencing, and they often lost big, end quote. So this looks like the best research on this subject to date, and it shows that judges rejected the prosecutor's recommendations 
about two-thirds of the time. So when we ask ourselves whether the January 6th defendants are being dealt with leniently, that is the broader context. Prosecutors don't usually get the amount of time they requested for the defendant at sentencing. Now, from the beginning, uh, I thought that we would see long terms of incarceration being handed down in the felony cases, and that's coming true. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that expectation. The federal justice system takes a rather dim view of people who attack federal law enforcement officers. We're not really seeing upward or downward deviations. Everything is within guidelines, as is usually the case, but there is an accounting for official victims in sentencing. And that is itself also having an impact in these cases. Arguably, one might also wish that the courts in the DCD did a better job of acknowledging the systematic threat that January 6th posed to electoral democracy in the United States and impose sentences that are stiffer. But again, they're not being lenient simply for not giving them all the time that prosecutors have asked for. And when they, you know, when they're uh, look, they're not giving all the time prosecutors asked for, it's not necessarily by a, a large margin, right? I mean, look at Albuquerque Head. They asked for eight years. He got seven and a half. That's not that big a difference, right? It's still real serious time. So as time goes on, the number of misdemeanor defendants is dwindling and the proportion of felony defendants is increasing. That's just as kind of a, a function of time. So, you know, partly because it takes longer to resolve these felony cases, the misdemeanor cases, those people pled out quickly. You get someone like Danny Rodriguez, for example, who tased Officer Fanon in the neck. He's going to trial, and I expect that we will find a similar outcome that we saw in the Webster case. Guess what? Those people like Head who are pleading, pleading to one felony charge, they're going to get less time than someone like Thomas Webster who winds up going to trial and gets convicted of all counts. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, someone like Thomas Webster is going to get more time. And again, that's why we're seeing this reluctant, you know, the federal court system is a plea bargain system. And we're seeing a lot of people who don't understand that. They don't want to take all the time that they would get uh, from, you know, accepting a felony charge. But if they're going to get convicted at trial, they're going to get more time. And I think that, yeah, I haven't done the numbers on this, but the proportion of people who are going to trial in January 6 cases is relatively high. And overall, that just means that there's, in the end, probably going to be more time awarded to this class of defendants that would, we would have expected otherwise. So it's kind of a weird temporal thing, but the process itself seems to select misdemeanor cases for quick resolution, and felony cases, they take longer, either because they, they go to trial uh, or because of just the legal process itself takes longer. People delay, they don't want to accept a plea, there's plea bargain negotiations, that whole process just means there's kind of a backloading in terms of overall time with regard to uh, who's getting what time given to them. All right, so 
The defendant profile for this ep episode is yet another twofer, continuing this trend of multi-defendant cases that we've seen starting back in June. Um, so fewer cases overall, but the proportion of those cases, which are multi-defendant cases, seems to be, be increasing. Not sure why that is. Um, you know, it could be maybe they're the proportion of people who were linked earlier was the same, but they didn't necessarily draw those linkages. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, but I, you know, it could be a bang for the buck question. Could have been that the, these multi-defendant cases are more complex, and so they've taken more time. So the defendant profiles for Thomas Weston, Tucker Weston, excuse me, 34, and his roommate, Jesse Watson, 33 both of Linwood, Washington, a suburb of Seattle. Hashtags SmilesPB and Insider293, respectively. Now, this is kind of confusing, right? I mean, roughly the same age, from the same town. Bit of a Mutt and Jeff, Jeff couple, actually. Uh, Watson is taller than Weston, but even similar names. Um, so I'm going to have to try to be careful to not get them confused, because uh, there, there actually are significant differences. Now, they're charged with four counts, including AFO and civil disorder. But it appears that, that Watson uh, is, of the two of them, the, the defendant who is going to be looking at less time. Um, Weston is, is a tiny little guy, uh, but very scrappy. Uh, he winds up fighting with much taller Capitol Police officers. You know, I, I think that... Um, He's probably lucky that they, they didn't lay him out. The arrest here is also notable because these defendants appear to have interacted with another long-sought-after suspect. Uh, I'll address that shortly uh, in this profile. So, as always, I'm interested in how these defendants were identified. And there's this usual pattern in the charging documents that that's where it begins, right? They've got that series of pages outlining the nature of the January 6th attack and the nature of uh, the offenses. And then uh, one of the first sections that they'll have is they'll talk about the identification of the person and what the first contact was, right? The first bit of information that led them to uh, the identity of the person in the charging documents from the anonymous Bolo photo. So that to me, is, is always is kind of an interesting question. You can see the work of sedition hunters and many of these, right? Enormous proportion of these defendants have been identified by sedition hunters. So, as always, thank you for your, the, your service. Um, but this doesn't seem to be the case here. So, FBI, thank you for your service. Um, the investigation, you know, seems to have been a result of uh, anonymous tip um, and also investigative work by the FBI. But they did it in a way that was very confusing, at least for me. Uh, this is one of those cases where they're not, they don't necessarily author these charging documents in the same way that I would hope. I would like to see more consistency um, because usually, that's like I said before, the first thing they mention is uh, the lead that gave them the identity of the defendant. Here, they started talking about hotels, another long-term obsession of mine. To quote from the charging documents, statement of facts, quote, records from ARC The Hotel, 
obtained pursuant to subpoena, indicate that Watson, along with another unnamed guest, stayed in a room at ARC The Hotel in Washington, D.C. from January 5th, 2021 until January 7th, 2021. Now, precisely because of this ordering, uh, as I was reading through this, and, you know, again, because I've also looked through so many of these cases where um, charging documents mention hotels, not as many as I would like, um, but nonetheless, you know, I've, I've been looking for that. It was very interesting to me to see this hotel connection come up first. And it raised the possibility in my mind that this might be a case where the primary identification of the defendant was based on a hotel record. So that seemed very promising to me, right? Uh, if the FBI really wanted to, uh, they've, I'm certain they've subpoenaed many of these hotels in many of these cases. And if they were able to get the names of everyone registered in those hotels uh, in that time period, and it's mainly the same time period that Watson and Weston are involved in, right, January 5th to, to January 7th, all they would have to do is look get, look up those names, get those names from, you know, the state driver's license agencies, compare those photos to Bolo photos, perhaps using facial recognition, and then use the other methods that they normally use to confirm identity. So this raised, you know, in my mind at least, not if not in reality, the possibility of uh, using this as a kind of a dragnet, right? Now, as it turns out, of course, you know, the, the actual dragnet that they've had, uh, and again, what's a dragnet, right? A dragnet is literally fishing. You drag a net through the water, and of course, you remember the, the, the TV show, right? A dragnet was basically something in a violation of civil rights and civil liberties. They would just go out and arrest a whole bunch of people uh, when they were looking for a crime. Um, but here, of course, you know, a dragnet would just be a way to drag gather a whole bunch of data, as has been done with the geofencing, right? My hope is, you know, maybe, or my intuition here was, perhaps they were doing that in cases such as this, to get those pesky, hard-to-find defendants. The problem is, of course, is that there's really no way to determine the sequence of events from the way the statement of facts is written. Again, uh, the usual practice is to put whatever the initial contact is first. But here... Looks like that wasn't the case. And again, there was a bit of a colloquy. I had posed this question on my Twitter feed. I want to thank all the listeners and people on Twitter and Sedition Hunters who responded to that um, because they disabused me of my dragnet theory. I don't think that's a thing that's happening. It's a thing I wish was happening. Uh, but nonetheless, as one user pointed out, uh, I think it was Neighbor, that the FBI reported a tip or rather, they recorded that they received a tip regarding the identity of Weston. And rather unusually, the date of the tip isn't disclosed. So, you know, that's probably it, right? That really probably is the first investigative contact, no matter how much I want my fantasy of a hotel dragnet to be true. That's probably it. It's really unusual because they mention this like many paragraphs after they talk about some of the other identification stuff. So it's just a case of inconsistent writing on the, the part of the, uh, the agent. And, you know, you see this all the time uh, where there, some of them are better at it than others. Uh, and I, you know, I wish that they were at least consistent in the way that they do it. 
but they're not. And I just need to, you know, conclude that the courts are the end users of these documents, not me. They're not going to do it to my specifications, no matter how much I wish they would. But there also may be a, a strategic legal reason for not including the date of the tip in the document. As we've seen in some of these cases, especially lately, defense attorneys have been repeatedly arguing in court that the government isn't treating these cases with any degree of urgency, so therefore their clients must not be all that dangerous. Seems like a bogus argument to me, but especially in cases where the defendants have not run afoul of the law again since January 6th, uh, that, you know, appears at least to be a somewhat plausible argument, right? They can say, look, while, while my uh, client was on the lam, he was a good boy. Well, of course, he's, he thinks he might be under investigation by the FBI. Of course he's trying to stay out of trouble. In any event, I think that that might be a good reason why they wouldn't necessarily include the date of the tip in there. Uh, if, it, if they got a tip in February of 2021, they don't necessarily want to say, well, we only followed up on it uh, in July of 2022 because we've been absolutely swapped. So, you know, we have no, and a lot of these dates, you know, things that you could infer how long this investigation has been ongoing for, absent from this document. So that may, may be some reason for why there's differences in organization in this document. Maybe it's just a, it's something that is done by this particular agent. Uh, maybe this is going to be a new trend. I don't know. We have to look at other cases to see. So, in any event, um, there's also open source video in which Weston refers to himself as Tucker and refers to Jesse, uh, which apparently is an alias of Watson. So, um, you know, they, they, they have multiple sources in the charging documents identifying Weston and Watson. Now, as far as the, the offenses that are covered go, Weston uh, was active on the west front of the Capitol, removing barricades, multiple instances, and also shoving officers. Uh, at one point, Weston actually, you can see in the, the photographs, uh, very much takes a lead role in removing barricades. So Weston is much more militant than, than Watson. Um, and, you know, again, just is very much uh, an aggressor in the front line of the attack on the west side of the Capitol. According to the Statement of Facts, quote, publicly available video from January 6, 2021, shows Weston, Weston without Watson for large portions of the day. A review of telephone records shows that Watson using the 1391 number, that's his, his phone number, they don't include the whole number for, you know, obvious reasons, made multiple attempts to contact Weston at the 2215 number between approximately 1.23 p.m. and 3.34 p.m. on January 6, 2021, end quote. It's not really relevant, um, but, you know, it's kind of a little, uh, little bit of a comedy of errors. These guys travel together all the way from Seattle, and uh, Weston just basically ditches his roommate for large portions of the day. And, you know, Watson is trying to get in touch with him. And we don't know if he's concerned for his welfare or maybe uh, he's lost in D.C. Maybe he went to grab a taco. 
Um, but while Weston is out, you know, removing barricades and getting in shoving fights with um, police, Watson is, is apparently doing something different. Now, both Weston and Watson ultimately enter the Capitol. And there's this bit of intriguing information from the statement of facts concerning Watson. Quote, Google records also indicate that on January 6, 2021, at 7.18 a.m., 7.19 a.m., and 7.43 a.m., the Watson Google account accessed a My Maps map entitled SIT1620. This map includes multiple event locations in Washington, D.C., including the Stop the Steal 10 a.m., the March on Congress 11 a.m., and Joint Session The Count at 1 a.m. The Joint Session The Count event is associated with a marker at the U.S. Capitol building. The Watson Google account also viewed numerous areas in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, including maps that included the Capitol building. So, again, intriguing, right? This shows that these two defendants, uh, or at least Watson, uh, oddly enough, one who's less involved with uh, barricades and, and pushing police, um, knows, he has, he's got the whole schedule, right? Stop the seal, 10 a.m., march on Congress, 11 a.m., joint session to count, 1 p.m. So, you know, it doesn't actually play out exactly like that, um, but you'll notice, like, Trump's speech, apparently, not in there. Not on the agenda. March on Congress and count, definitely in there. So, a show's premeditation shows that there's planning and coordination uh, with these defendants and someone else, right? They know what's going on. They know the timetable of the attack. And, perhaps, uh, intend on taking part in it. Uh, although, Curiously, Watson seems to have been less aggressive in that than perhaps he may have intended. Now, if you combine this with the fact that Watson keeps trying to call Weston and Weston never answered, I mean, maybe Weston turned off his phone at some point. I don't know. It's curious uh, because he's also depicted talking on his phone. So I don't know if he's like ducking him for some reason. Maybe they're having an argument. Maybe Watson has reconsidered and he doesn't actually want to physically engage police. And Weston has ditched him and decided, no, I'm going ahead with this. But they finally do connect up. At 3.34, there's a 75-second call between Watson and Weston. And Capitol CCTV footage uh, actually appears to show Weston on the phone with someone at the same time. And they leave the Capitol the together at 3.49 p.m., which is also on video. Now, after they leave the Capitol, Weston, who's, again, much more thuggish of the two, takes a little time to kick some media equipment that probably had already had the shit kicked out of it pretty severely. Now, there's some question as to whether or not Weston is affiliated with a group. Uh, the PB in his hashtag would lead you to believe that he's a proud boy but he's not really with them during the day, except, of course, you know, he is. I mean, like, for example, you know, from the photos, you can see there's a couple of orange hats in the background from, like, you know, Arizona Proud Boys. But again, there's there's intermingling of that mob. 
Um, although he does apparently uh, march with them to the capital. So it may be that he's a radicalized normie um, that, you know, they gave him the schedule. You know, something I've suspected of, of for example, Shane Jenkins, maybe that the Proud Boys were in charge of, you know, radicalizing the, or getting in contact with these radicalized norm normies and to some extent uh, hiding behind them. Um, but curiously, he's also affiliated with other groups. He appears to hang out with them, which suggests that coordination between uh, the Proud Boys and other groups, right? So uh, in one photo, he's with Robert Geeswine, uh, the three percenter from Colorado. Um, and you can actually see his My Mom Thinks I'm Special patch on his plate carrier, which is, you know, very defend, very, very easy, easily identifiable, even though in that particular shot, Geeswine's uh, face isn't visible more on him later. So, anyway, Weston's definitely there with an organized group of violent paramilitary types. Watson has information on his phone that clearly shows he has knowledge of the advanced planning of the attack. And there's just this curious, odd thing that happens where they wind up getting separated. There's no actual indication in the charging documents of what Weston, sorry, Watson is actually doing. Uh, while Weston is engaged in his activities on the west side of the Capitol. So in any event, uh, yeah, SmilesPB, uh, his hashtag, again, thanks uh, for the person who gave me this information. Uh, he's spotted in the, the march to the Capitol and, you know, with the Proud Boys. So that's why he's categorized as a Proud Boy in his hashtag, although it's not mentioned in the charging documents at all. And I don't think there's a real reason to say that he is, uh, you know, actually a beaten-in member of the Proud Boys. Um, to my mind, it's almost like he's shopping around, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to hang out with the Proud Boys. I'm going to hang out with the Three Percenters. Uh, who, who are these wooden wild dogs? I'll, I'll hang out with these guys. Uh, you know, it's like Greek Week on campus. He's looking to find out which little fascist fraternity he's going to join. Also... Uh, and I alluded to this earlier, included in the statement of facts, uh, you see in the photos that Weston and Watson make a contact with a, another suspect, a young female who's been assigned the hashtag by Sedition Hunters, Pink Beret, uh, who's a small, uh, diminutive, rather young woman with dark hair who really stands out for her fashion-forward fascism uh, in a crowd of angry, middle-aged, bearded Trumpus. And she appears to be alone for most of the day, but just runs into, like, a whole bunch of different people and and is all over the Capitol. And there's very clear photographs of her uh, from January 6th. So she wears an elaborate pink beret that's adorned with beads and ribbons, uh, has pink eyeshadow, and carries what appears to be a Dolce & Gabbana messenger bag, at one point, she smoked cigars, which would seem out of character, uh, but apparently not. She's a cigar smoker. And she appears to be a fan of the Tsukimo Garashi line of characters from the Japanese stationery company San X, as she has a custom uh, Tsukimo Garashi cell phone case that was apparently a limited release in Japan. Uh, again, this is mainly just reading from uh, 
people who've actually done the real work on this, because there have been a lot of people who have investigated this person. Now, she's an insider, hashtag insider0729, and was also present at the smashing of media equipment, and may have done some general looting as well. So she's an interesting figure because she's just everywhere in the footage on January 6th and makes contact with a number of interesting people um, and is uh, just kind of a white whale. Um, she's kind of notable like someone like Individual 4, for example, who I really hope to be able to do a defendant profile on one day, want to see charging documents on him eventually. In any event, when she meets Weston, uh, Weston and Watson... I don't know if they're happy to see her. Uh, Weston definitely smiles at her. She might smile back, or vice versa. I don't know if this indicates some prior association. Maybe this means that Pink Beret is actually from somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so maybe the the you know the identification of these two suspects. Who knows? Maybe the FBI already has the identity. Obviously, again, if you have any information, I'm sure the government would like to hear from you. So, I want to thank all the listeners in the Sedition Hunt community who helped answer my questions about the question, uh, the people included in this particular profile. Now, most of the time, I can get most of these answers myself from publicly available information and from the charging documents, but there's just not a lot to go off of in a Weston Watson case. And it doesn't help that they have really, like, common names as well. Uh, so, like, a lot of open source stuff just kind of hard to get. And even, oddly enough, the news articles about these two defendants um, are very free from detail, right? They're just a couple of anonymous guys, relatively speaking, from a suburb of Seattle, and we know very little about them. But I think that that detail about Watson's phone containing what would appear to be uh, a, a plan, right, that somebody gave him about when they were going to attack the Capitol appears to be something significant and may connect him to other future defendants. Also, since I mentioned Robert Eastwine in passing, I should take a moment to uh, talk about the status of his case. Now, you'll remember him as a three percenter from Colorado, who's also affiliated with a group that he founded he calls the Woodland Wild Dogs. This is, of course, a high-profile case that I have had occasion to uh, mention before. Uh, this particular individual uh, it was depicted in front of um, Lauren Bobert's uh, Tomain restaurant uh, at some point. So, but he also faces 11 charges in his second superseding indictment from August of this year, including the 1512 obstruction of an official proceeding charge, civil disorder charges, and multiple counts against officers for assault with aerosol sprays and a baseball bat. So, one of the worst of the worst, and he has been held in pretrial detention ever since his arrest. Now, I actually, just because someone, you know, comes up briefly and they appear in some photos and some charging documents, wouldn't ordinarily bring him up, but it's an important case. And also, there's been some strange developments. Now, supposedly, he was going to get tried on October 24th before Judge Emmett Sullivan. But that's not happening now. The judge granted a continuance in August and reset the new trial date for May 2nd, 2023. Uh, apparently, according to the uh, motions, 
The parties weren't doing what they needed to do in order to move the case to trial. There are a number of motions and orders. Uh, if you want to look, you know, on Court Listener or uh, Pacer, wherever you get your documents. But basically, you can just see Judge Sullivan becoming increasingly frustrated. So now, apparently, Judge Sullivan is off the case, and the case has been randomly reassigned to Judge Trevor McFadden, uh, keeping with, I believe, the May 2nd, 2023 trial date. So the funny thing is that at the very beginning, Geeswine's attorneys were very much in favor of getting a speedy trial as, as possible. Um, and yet they've been slow walking this case. So it still looks like he's going to want a jury trial. But now that it's in front of McFadden, uh, you have to wonder, hey, are they going to try to do a, a bench trial? Um, but again, if he ever actually gets sentenced for these offenses, you know, spraying, you know, attacking officers with a baseball bat, he's going to be in the running for one of the longest sentences in the January 6th universe of cases. And as we've seen, defendants who wind up going to trial and getting convicted of all charges at trial wind up doing more time than the ones who take deals. So that's Geese one. Uh, arrested, identified relatively early on. Just, I think there's like a whole, just huge slew of activity in that case. Didn't review all the documents. Um, but it's just, you know, his defense team has been very aggressive and yet also somehow not ready for trial. Um, and, you know, uh, my guess would be that Judge Sullivan wasn't available for the new trial date. So now it's going for before McFadden. Uh, who, incidentally, by the way, uh, even though he is the source of the one acquittal that we've had, that was for a misdemeanor case. His sentences for felony cases aren't really out of line with other felony verdicts in the January 6th universe of cases. So, you know, indeed, I mean, he's the one who sentenced uh, Hale Cusinelli on the 1512 count, right? And, you know, wound up giving him uh, 42 months and four days. So, you know, not too bad. Now, I'm not going to do any election forecasting here, but I'd like to take some time to mention an issue related to January 6th and the ongoing midterm elections. The one thing that we know for a fact is that election denial is now baked into the Republican Party. It's part of their platform. And so they're going to question the results whenever and wherever they lose, and they're going to seek to delegitimize the outcome of every race in which they lose. Now, this is interesting, of course, because they always speak as though it's inevitability that, of course, Republicans are going to win. But you have to remember that 29.42% of voters are registered as Republicans in this country but 33.78% are registered as Democrats. So just by this basic math, you'd assume that Republicans would have some awareness that they're a minority party, and they shouldn't have the expectation that they're going to win every race. Of course they do, right? Um, but it serves their interest at the moment to pretend otherwise, despite a nine-point gap in registrations uh, favorable to Democrats nationwide. So a little less than two years after January 6th, it's become the party line doctrine of the Republican Party that Democrats only win when they cheat. In practical terms, of course, this means characterizing that the nation's urban areas, which are predominantly Democratic, are also areas of election fraud, havens for election fraud. 
and the America First fascist movement has made election denialism part of the platform for all of its candidates, and those candidates did well in the primaries. So it is election deniers all the way down, from local precinct organizations, which have been targeted by Steve Bannon for takeover by extreme MAGA Republicans, to state legislatures, to House and Senate races, and even statewide races. In Arizona, Trumpist goons have been monitoring ballot drop boxes, and there are now six cases of voter intimidation that in, have been referred to the U.S. Justice Department. So that's disturbing, especially as, as early voting continues, if that continues uh, in other jurisdictions. Now, interestingly, I don't know that uh, voter intimidation actually works, by the way. Um, the, for many voters, it's counterintuitive, but efforts at voter intimidation, when you try to take away people's right to vote, they actually respond negatively to that and tend to vote. Um, but in any event, you know, I would rather, in some sense, have these people sitting around drop boxes at 2 a.m. Uh, because they've been sent on a wild goose chase by the 2000 Mules propaganda movie than actually knocking on doors, uh, registering voters, and doing go TV work. So, but still, it is concerning, right? And even more concerning are the poll-watching efforts where it, it seems likely that what, you know, again, these Bannon-backed uh, organizers are going to do is they're going to look for every little thing that is ordinarily not questionable, you know, or suspicious in any way, but they're going to characterize normal parts of the election process as suspicious. You know, just as we've seen with, with the so-called uh, vote dumps, right, in large urban areas where, oh, they have central processing facilities and they wind up getting done at the same time, and it's oftentimes late in the evening. You know, that's a normal part, if you follow our elections, that's a normal part of the elections process. You know, they're going to characterize every person who's carrying an envelope as a mule or something of that nature. So that is going to be part of the propaganda campaign that's baked in, as well as the possibility of voter intimidation. So this is something which democracy is on the ballot, election denialism is on the ballot, and uh, every activist needs to be on the lookout for, especially as you're doing uh, work on election day and uh, volunteer activist work in uh, early voting locations, and generally during uh, things like GoTV, out in neighborhoods. It's not always safe. I have had people threaten me, um, and, you know, that, again, just the radicalized mood among the far right is very dangerous at the present time. All right, now, I, I normally don't talk much about my home state of North Carolina in the podcast, mainly because it's usually not that relevant, right? I mean, we're talking about a national political story. But, you know, North Carolina is a significant state. It's rather large. Uh, it's going to be, I believe, the 10th most popular state in the country. And it's somewhat undercovered by the national media in the midterms. Uh, this is actually an important purplish state. Uh, red, but, you know, sometimes purple. We have a Democratic governor right now, Roy Cooper, for example. Um, and we also have a reasonably competitive Senate race between Sherry Beasley and Ted Butt that has flown, for the most part, in the national media under the radar. Now, this could be in part because Bud has led consistently in the polls, but his lead 
has always been within the margin of error. It's been three points or less for the entire time. So that is something that, you know, North Carolina probably, especially the Senate race, should get a little bit more attention, especially if you have, you know, extra money, you know, send it Sherry Beasley's way. She's a great candidate. Um, there's also concerns that, you know, I think that the election deniers, the America First people, the extreme MAGA Republicans, do recognize the importance of North Carolina and they are mobilizing resources. Cleta Mitchell, uh, who's an attorney who is one of the leading Trumpist election deniers, recently moved to North Carolina and is leading her national efforts from North Carolina and has also trained over a thousand poll watchers to monitor the election here in North Carolina's 100 counties. And so I hope you'll forgive me as I go into a little bit of a deeper dive into one particular candidate who is running in my own house district, the 4th Congressional District of North Carolina. Now this is someone who's been on my mind for quite a while now, but as the election draws closer, I think it's kind of an emblematic case study that may have some broader relevance. The, broad, the Republican Party in the 2022 midterms is a bit like a set of nesting dolls, right? It's just election deniers all the way down. So the 4th Congressional District is centered uh, here in Durham, North Carolina, but also includes areas of neighboring counties. When the Republican Party assumed the majority of the General Assembly in 2010 as part of the uh, AstroTurf Tea Party wave, it governed the redistricting process at that time. Now, there's been complex litigation involved here. Uh, in 2017, the Supreme Court ruled that the gerrymandering in the 2011 reapportionment was unconstitutional because it was a massive racial gerrymander designed specifically to dilute the impact of the state's black voters. Now, bit of a digression here, but the man who was leading the, the leading national authority and consultant for Republican gerrymanderers, uh, Thomas Hofeller, just happened to be a North Carolinian. Uh, he died, and his the files on his computer was preserved by his daughter, who is herself an avowed anti-fascist, and so these have been proved to be key to further litigation, showing that ultimately they had to, they had to ultimately redraw the maps, right? I mean, the, the, the maps drawn in 2011 were just patently absurd. They were these weird octopus-like things. The maps are still bad. They still give an unfair advantage to Republicans, but they're at least more geographically compact. Now, the 4th District is a solidly Democratic district. Part of gerrymandering that uh, folks oftentimes ignore is that while you're maximizing the number of safe districts that are in the hands of the party that's doing the redistricting, they also inevitably create some really strong supermajority districts for the opposing party. So the 4th Congressional District in North Carolina is one of these. So they, you know, they crack them and they pack them. Republicans, in order to maximize the number of Republican plus 5 districts, that's say districts in which the Republican Party normally has a 5 percentage point advantage, have packed as many Democrats as possible into the 4th District. So, what does that mean? In practical terms, in 2020, the Democratic incumbent, political scientist David Price, won by a 35-point margin, 67.3% of 
to 32.7%. So partly a consequence of gerrymandering, partly as yes, it's a blue dot in the middle of a, a Red Sea. Um, well, not entirely. There's Wake County over to the east. Nonetheless, uh, no Republican is ever, ever, ever going to win this district. It's a D plus 30 district, which is part of the reason why this particular race uh, hasn't really gathered much attention. Now, it really doesn't matter who the Republicans run in the 4th District. When they gerrymander the state, they have to find districts to put Democrats into, and the 4th is the deepest blue district in the state. So it doesn't matter who they're going to run, that person's going to lose. Running in this district as a Republican is practically an act of masochism. They are a sacrificial lamb who has no chance whatsoever. So almost no one, even the local press, spends a lot of time on whoever the sacrificial lamb that the Republicans put up in the 4th District is. They just, this person has no chance of winning, and it's not considered newsworthy. That being said, I'm going to take a little time to do a candidate profile, because, again, I think that these are the kinds of candidates that we're seeing also across the country. And more importantly, as we will see, the American First MAGA movement is tightly connected to Donald Trump. This candidate is no exception, but these connections haven't really been explored precisely because people don't think she has any chance of winning. So the Republican nominee for the 4th District in the midterms is Courtney Geels, G-E-E-L-S, like Eels with a G. In the May 17th primary, Geels uh, beat her opponent, a local real estate appraiser, by nearly 30 points. Now, she lives um, a few miles from my house at present. Originally, uh, she had actually announced her intention to run in the 13th Congressional District, uh, just to the west of the 4th Congressional District. And that's consistent with where she says she's from. She says she's from Hillsborough, and apparently she had lived in Hillsborough up until that time. But in April of 2021, she bought her current house in Durham, presumably specifically to run in the 4th Congressional District rather than her home district, the 13th District. Now that is really weird. You know, people do do this carpetbagging thing where they move around to try to find a better district, usually, but you don't buy a house in a district where you have no chance of winning. So my supposition here is that, of course, she knows that and uh, really just wants to win the nomination. These are the kind of backroom deals that, that you know, sometimes get cut in local and state level politics. Uh, you see, this, I think, shows some organization by at least the state level party and perhaps by people of the uh, American First Extreme MAGA movement. Because the 13th district is currently represented by Ted Budd, who is, of course, as already mentioned, the Republican nominee for Senate. So my supposition is that she made the move from the 13th district to the 4th district in order to accommodate Bo Hines, who's a 27-year-old former football player for NC State, who also moved into the 13th district just a month before declaring. So kind of like just, you know, um, musical chairs, right? District picking musical chairs. And somebody thought Bo Hines has a great chance to win in 13th District. And so they've installed him as the nominee there. 
and uh, as a consolation prize, Courtney Geels just moves, uh, you know, a few miles from Hillsboro over across the county line into Durham and runs in the 4th District. Alright, so what's Courtney Geels all about? Now, in her campaign material, she focuses an awful lot on the fact that she's a nurse. Uh, for some reason, despite her not having a snowball's chance in hell of winning, local Republicans have put up an unusual amount of signage in the area. Uh, usually, they, you know, they, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but, you know, again, this is the MAGA Republican fringe. They're really heavily ideologically motivated. Now, her background, a bit of a cipher, she's a, she's a nurse, she's a local girl from Hillsboro, uh, she's also a graduate of Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Bob Jones University is probably best known for maintaining racial segregation until 1971. And from 1971 to 75, they only admitted married black students. Now, why only married black students? Well, of course, because Bob Jones didn't want black students and white students dating one another, let alone marrying. Now, the 4th District is the largest majority-minority district in the state. Uh, is, you know, by far. It's not a Bob Jones University kind of place, but of course... Keels doesn't mention much about herself other than the fact that she's a graduate of Bob Jones University. And so not everybody is from the Carolinas. So I'd take a little bit of time to characterize Bob Jones University. Now, especially if you're younger than I am, you may not remember any of this or have any familiarity with the controversies surrounding Bob Jones. Uh, but Bob Jones University is operated as a private entity in the hands of multiple generations of the descendant of the school's descendants of the school's founder, who is of course Bob Jones himself, a preacher. So to get a little bit of a flavor for who Bob Jones was, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a snippet from his most famous sermon, which is a sermon that Bob Jones broadcast on the school's radio station in 1960. This was a sermon that Bob Jones felt was so important that he actually had it printed out as a pamphlet for wide distribution. And this pamphlet and the sermon was intended as a reaction to the civil rights movement. The title of the pamphlet was, Is Segregation Scriptural? So it's a racist screed, and every objectionable trope that you could find uh, against the civil rights movement you would care to mention uh, is included in it, and probably even a few that might be new to you. So here's Bob Jones's um, information, Bob Jones's message to the American public in 1960 regarding the civil rights movement. Quote, I want you folks to listen, you white and you colored folks. Do not let these satanic propagandists fool you. This agitation is not of God. It is of the devil. Do not let people slander God Almighty. God made it plain. God meant for Christian people to treat each other right. If you are a Christian white person or a Christian colored person, you will treat each other right. We Christians are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We are one in God. But let us remember that the God who made of one blood all nations also fixed the boundaries of their habitations. End quote. So there's a lot more of that. You get the kind of flavor of what Bob Jones University 
is all about, or what it was all about anyway. Uh, although, I, you know, I'm not sure it's changed that much, right? But Bob Jones University did ultimately decide this policy banning white students and black students from dating was wrong. They, they decided that was wrong uh, after Bob Jones himself was already long dead. And they changed the policy in 2000, the year 2000, 22 years ago. So that tells you a little bit about how, you know, the values of Bob Jones University. Now, Jones himself would deny endorsing white supremacy. But of course, that's just an outright lie, right? He regularly referred to black people as the children of ham and called the civil rights movement satanic propaganda, as you just heard. So that's Bob Jones University. There's a lot more history there, but suffice it to say, that history is one that endorsed white supremacy with these biblical rationalizations. I'll put a link to the, the sermon in the show notes. Uh, for many of you, of course, this material won't be new, especially if you look through it. It is, of course, an intensely conservative place. And in the South, intensely conservative also sometimes means deeply racist. And Giel's, again, one of the few facts she includes about herself, you know, that's where she went to school. Um, without comment, just, yep, I'm a graduate of Bob Jones University. Now, Giel's is running in the 4th District. Again, majority-minority. Um... And she never, of course, actually addresses how she feels about the history of her alma mater. It's just not even noteworthy, even though it's something she, she apparently wants to brag about. Um, she does have some interesting opinions on, about black people. So one of the things that she has, one of the few bits of coverage that she's generated for her campaign, was a candidate interview with the News of Orange newspaper. And here's what she had to say about working with Democrats. Quote, The black community has talked a lot about, in the past year or two, about how there have been people that are incarcerated unjustly. My big words are truth, justice, and unity. These are words that have been used by both parties, really, but especially the Democrats, and specifically Biden, with justice in unity. I've gotten some pushback. Republicans are like, I don't like those words. You need to walk away from those words because that's what the Democrats use. And I'm like, they're beautiful words. The problem is, what we're seeing is people just want unity when people are not unified right now. You can't just say, we're going to be unified. Can't just start there. They're going backwards. Unity, justice, truth. We need to dig into truth. What is going on right now? What laws are actually harming the black community? What people specifically are harming the black community? What actual things can we fix? I understand there's a problem, but we can't just scream about it. End quote. So that's right. So immediately when she's asked about working with Democrats, she immediately shifts her to her views on criminal justice reform, which are pretty incomprehensible, um, except that she doesn't want people screaming about it. You know, thank you very much. There will be no screaming about justice. Uh, you should know your place in the divine order of things as established in the Christo-fascist ideology of Bob Jones himself. So just full Trumpist word salad, right? I mean, she's she's basically got these three campaign buzzwords that are backed up by nothing, um, but, you know, likes to talk about 
um, unity, but yet hasn't actually offered any, anything really, like, you know, concrete. Um, I don't know if she, you know, maybe she has a black friend. Who knows? Um, anyway. That's not the only topic she's addressed, of course. Uh, in the same interview, she was asked about January 6th. Here's what she had to say. Quote, I don't think that law-breaking is in any way is ever acceptable. I want to be very, I want to very, very clearly say that. Entering the Capitol was not okay. There's debate on who is actually entering the Capitol. Are these Trump supporters? Were they people dressed like Trump supporters? I don't know. I think that whoever entered the Capitol was breaking the law, and they should be prosecuted in such a way that they were breaking the law. End quote. There's an editor's note here, editor's note, to date there has been no evidence that rioters disguise themselves as Trump supporters to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Alright, so yeah, that's who she is. You know, this is, I'm just asking questions. We don't know. We don't know who all the angry mayonnaise people with Trump banners, flags, and tattoos were. Could have been anybody. Could have been Antifa. And this is interviews from January of 2021. So, you know, uh, sorry, January 2022, this past year. Um, so she would have had a year, two years nearly, to figure out, uh, no, no, just a full year. Sorry, what my math is failing me. Uh, who these defendants actually were, right? You know, no proof of any of these allegations. But she's still raising the red herring of, well, maybe they were just dressed like Trump supporters. Now, that's the one correction the News of Orange actually includes in the interview. Um, but, you know, of course, yeah, you, you kind of have to say that. Uh, you ought to point that out because it just, it's a lie, right? There's no, it's it just out and out lie. You know, show me which of these, in the Bolo photos, which of these people are actually secret Antifa. Also, in her Twitter feed, she's posted a short video of Ray Epps, uh, the Oath Keeper from Arizona, with the caption, The True Story of January 6th. Um, and so she's, again, not just an election denier, but also a January 6th denier, uh, spreading disinformation about January 6th and who was behind it. Here's what she has to say about education. Quote, Every child has the right to a quality education, free from political ideology. Parents have a right to know what is being taught at their children's school. Therefore, we need transparency. I stand against the teaching of CRT and queer gender theory in our schools. End quote. All right, so her issue positions are exactly what you'd expect, right? She has a lot to say about guns. She loves them. Uh, a lot to say about abortion. She hates that. Um, the usual, right? Although, interestingly, when it comes to vaccines... No, you know, you should have a right to bodily autonomy. Abortion, universally, I mean, you know, I don't need to repeat uh, the, the party line on that one. She's also endorsed by something called the Tea Party Patriots Citizen Fund. So if you find someone who's endorsed by the Tea Party Patriots Citizens Fund, obviously this is, you know, uh, probably not something you're going to, someone you're going to vote for. Anyway, hopefully. Now, her campaign, again, has just gotten scant attention, again, mainly because she has no real chance of winning, but she's a far-right candidate running in the most progressive, progressive congressional district in the state. 
Um, now, one thing that is missing from all the coverage, I haven't found this mentioned in any local or national article at all, uh, even from a you know, scant reporting that there is, is who her husband is. So, um, she is married to one Brian Geels, as Brian with a Y. Who is Brian Geels? You can be forgiven for not knowing who Brian Geels is. Brian Geels is a certified public accountant, accountant who Courtney Geels met in Seattle and married in 2020. Hmm, I wonder if maybe they were, they met during some kind of political event. Who knows? But Brian Geels was also paid $15,000 to work as an expert witness in the Trump v. Raffensperger case in December of 2020. Despite, by the way, the fact that Brian Geels, certified public accountant, had no previous experience in elections. So he himself is not merely an election denier. He was caught up, uh, not caught up in, but in, involved in an integral to the uh, election fraud disinformation campaign and the legal strategy of trying to overturn the election results in the state of Georgia. Now, Trump v. Raffensperger was filed on December 4th, 2020, and the Supreme Court of Georgia refused to hear the case. So, not a lot of came out of his evidence. But, of course, Giles' work has already figured in any number of cases because it relates to the conspiracy to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And it's going to be entered into many of these cases as evidence, as it was in Eastman v. Thompson, for example. So, in Trump versus Raffensperger, the defendants retained the services of someone who actually is an election expert. Political scientist Professor Charles Stewart III, distinguished professor of political science at MIT, who makes an expert opinion on the evidence provided by Trump and his team, and specifically, Brian Giels. So here's what Professor Stewart has to say about Giels's, uh, you know, election fraud analysis. Quote, The anomalies Mr. Giels uncovers are generally minor typographical and clerical errors that are neither signs of fraudulent behavior nor lacks control over election administration in the state. He discusses other seemingly major anomalies that, upon even cursory examination, are either better characterized as benign errors or, in a few cases, suggest errors of analysis or ignorance of Georgia law on the part of Mr. Geels. Mr. Geels also performs some database matching that relies on the same discredited matching procedures employed by Mr. Brainerd. Mr. Geels's conclusions, therefore, are unreliable and without merit. End quote. And again, Geels' report is rather lengthy. Uh, Professor Stewart's report uh, debunking it is rather lengthy. But Geels was apparently paid $15,000 uh, for doing a CPA-style CPA uh, analysis that was just the equivalent of scratching the election results out and scribbling Trump won in, in crayon, basically. So if there's this candidate running here in the 4th District uh, who's this connected to election denialism and the actual effort to overturn the electoral results, and it's not getting any media coverage here or anywhere, 
then I'm sure that's probably the case elsewhere, right? Many of these people, the ones that we know about, the obvious ones, you know, the Carrie Lakes and the Doug Mastrianos. But if you dig deeper down, you'll find that this America First MAGA Extreme Republican movement is also in down-ballot races and even in congressional races, which one would think would, you know, receive more attention. So it's all election deniers. It's all Trumpists all the way down. So the 2020 campaign just features on the Republican side of the aisle election deniers and opponents of democracy at all levels. The fact that one of the lead experts who testified on behalf of Trump in 2020 is the spouse of someone now running for the U.S. House and no one's reporting on it is a little alarming. But make no mistake about it. It's not simply just that Republicans across the board have adopted election denial as an ideological component of the platform. It's that the very same people, the very same personnel who were involved in January 6th and also deeply, are also deeply involved in the 2020 mid, 2022 midterm election. So we might see faces from the mob on January 6th turning up as poll watchers or making efforts to intimidate voters. Uh, we've got certainly have people such as Cleta Mitchell and Sidney Powell and Brian Geels. Uh, you know, his wife is running kind of a stealth election denial campaign. It's something we should all be aware of. And every candidate, every statewide party organization has attorneys. So if you see something during your work this election season, uh, say something. Not just to law enforcement, who may or may not be interested, but also to political actors actually involved in the electoral process. I've been involved in grassroots politics for my entire adult lifetime. If you really want to see a troop of lawyers swoop in very fast, you'll see it if you notice something like voter intimidation. All right. So now let's move on to the uh, first tranche of Oath Keepers defendants in the seditious conspiracy case in Judge Maida's courtroom in D.C. District Court. Now I'm very sad to say that there is no call in line. So don't get to, I really, really miss it. So I don't get to listen in, but fortunately there are any number of journalists in the courtroom who have been doing an excellent job. They have a media center there equipped and some of them are live tweeting. Uh, people like Roger Parloff from Lawfare, uh, Brandy Buckman, Kyle Cheney, and, and many others. So I could say there, there's been no real surprises, but of course that, that's not true. There have been a few that um, have come out uh, of the courtroom already. The government has very much been pursuing the case that is outlined in the charging documents. Uh, the basic case being that these defendants were engaged in an effort to thwart the peaceful transfer of power beginning immediately after the 2020 election, although perhaps as early as September, uh, and reaching a climax on January 6th and continuing thereafter. The heart of the government's case is very simple. Despite the richness of the detailed testimony, they're going to still get heard in Judge Major's courtroom over uh, the next few weeks. These defendants sought to oppose the peaceful transfer of power by force. That's it. Now, some people are a little confused about what that means. They assume that seditious conspiracy means that you're going to overthrow the government. But again, if you look at the actual statute and you look at what the government's case is, it's that they plotted to overturn the election by force. They plotted to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. They, were not, they are not being charged with overthrowing the government. 
Now, you, you could get there, right? You could say that, you know, they were trying to overthrow the government, but that's literally not the government's case. And, uh, again, I, you know, I did the episode, uh, first episode of the year where I talked about why they weren't going to charge seditious conspiracy and the reasons that applied to the Hoodry case, that loss, all apply here. Uh, it's a much lower bar to say, well, they were opposing the government by force, as they clearly did, than to uh, risk having the defense argue, well, they couldn't reasonably possibly expect it to have overthrown the government. So, again, opposing the government by force, not necessarily trying to overthrow it. And I think that, you know, again, in the evidence so far, they're going to meet the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the defendants aren't going to keep attempting to introduce unreasonable doubts. The defense attorneys, at least some of them, have continued to try to muddy the waters, what I call the, the classic Chewbacca defense from South Park. Uh, they're throwing in internet conspiracy theories. They're using whataboutism. Uh, they're using efforts to distract and redirect the jury. Much of this is consistent with the behavior of these attorneys that I observed listening in the call-in lines from the pre-trial hearings, some of which is, is, is kind of surprising, because Maida would shut them down in those pre-trial hearings. Nonetheless, they're still trying to do the same nonsense when they're doing things like cross-examining witnesses. So, what's an example? One example is... The defense objected to a video presentation that was put together by the Department of Justice showing the broader context of the attack on the Capitol. The defense objected to sections of the video claiming that it didn't contain footage that was relevant to these defendants and therefore was inflammatory and Judge Mehta actually gave them a win and he ordered the government to edit out a couple of segments of that presentation. Now, what's extraordinary about this is the amount of bad faith in which they've, they've engaged in here. At every pretrial hearing, these same defense attorneys claimed that they wanted all of the video evidence entered into discovery. Everything, including cut footage that didn't actually include this set of defendants, they were absolutely outraged that this potentially exculpatory evidence was somehow being withheld unjustly from the defense. And yet, on the day when that testimony, that evidence, is introduced into the courtroom, the defense decides, decides, no, 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 we don't want the jury to see any of this. So I thought that was very telling, uh, very much in bad faith. It just shows that these attorneys were trying to establish a possible basis for appeal, and they're not, in the end, actually interested in presenting the evidence in its all of its fullness to the jury. The government has also been presenting a series of officers who were present at January 6th and took part in the fight against the mob to give their accounts of what happened. What I found interesting was that, at first, certain of the defense attorneys were rather aggressive in the cross-examination of these officers. And reading the live tweets of the testimony, that appears to have stopped, um, with some officers really not being meaningfully cross-examined at all. In a rare moment of lucidity, I think that the defense rather smartly realized that vigorous cross-examination of these witnesses is counterproductive. Um, as you follow the trial on Twitter, you can't actually see the faces of the jury. Of course, neither can I. But my guess is that the attorneys realized it's just a super bad look to be so aggressive in the 
cross-examination of the heroic officers who defended Congress and electoral democracy on January 6th. Uh, it just makes it seem that, you know, not only are the Oath Keepers thugs, but their attorneys are also thugs. No, nonetheless, you know, even though they're strategically perhaps not doing that anymore, I do think there's a possibility that they will resume vigorous cross-examination of law enforcement when it suits them. So there are any number of different defense attorneys. They have different agendas, and the agendas of their clients may not always perfectly align with one another. Um, there, there may be people who are, for example, trying to throw some of their other co-defendants under the bus. I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, but, again, there's a spectacle of these out-of-town attorneys um, who are berating these officers. And I don't think it's a good strategy for them moving forward. But some of these people are just ideologically motivated. I'm not going to name names, but they're so ideologically wedded to the idea that, you know, these defendants did nothing wrong, that there's they have no decency. Um, and so you have these out-of-town attorneys uh, who are berating these local D.C. officers uh, who are at least, you know, if not from D.C. itself, from the D.C. metro area. And, you know, the officers are probably going to be more sympathetic to the jury than uh, these, you know, random people from Texas and other places. So it's a reminder, once again, of course, if you're going to do a federal crime, do your crimes at home. Uh, don't drive to another jurisdiction and, you know, rely on, uh, as a defense, questioning local law enforcement when, you know, you made a choice to go to the place and do the thing. Now, in the evidence, a number of minor questions uh, have actually been answered. There's this one thing uh, that I found was curious in the signal chat. If you go back to the um, episode on the Vallejo material, uh, you'll remember that Rhodes puts out a call for other members of his gang to join him on the south side of the building. Now, that was always puzzling to me because Rhodes was actually somewhere on the east side of the Capitol, uh, perhaps somewhere around the, the northeast corner. Rhodes had actually worked at the Capitol back in his Ron Paul days, and, you know, he likes to think of himself as an elite military person. I mean, one of the basic things that you learn in the military is orienteering, and so you would think you would understand basic directions. So, you know... Um, I don't think he's entirely stupid, so that always struck me as rather odd. Now, it occurred to me, as I was going through a number of maps that I stole on my phone, there's actually a simple answer to this question. This is confusion about the directions. There are various different maps of the Capitol, um, but very few maps of the Capitol actually show its true orientation. For some reason, map makers always want to place the long axis of the Capitol on an east-west axis, when actually the long axis of the Capitol runs north-south. I was actually looking at a map of the Capitol with the west side of the Capitol facing the top edge of the page when it occurred to me that Rhodes must have actually had a very similar map. It's so counterintuitive. It's very strange. But very few maps of the Capitol actually orient the Capitol correctly. You have to look at the key to see the little in there, right? I really wish I actually had a copy of the laminated map that Watkins produced and handed out to the gang, but I bet it's probably oriented in the same way, with the west side of the Capitol uh, facing in a direction that would normally make you think 
is actually the uh, north side of the Capitol. So, answer that to my question, my, my own personal satisfaction at that time, right? Uh, even though he'd personally been there, it had been many years, and he had a map that, uh, you know, superficially made it seem like the west side of the Capitol was the north side of the Capitol. And so he invites people to join him on the south side of the Capitol when he was actually on the east side of the Capitol. Uh, you know, yeah, okay. And again, not a rocket scientist, but a, a mistake that at least now seems plausible to me. Another new bit of information is the question of why it was that the Columbus doors, uh, those massive ornamental bronze doors that were added to the west side of the Capitol in 1863, were opened on January 6th. The answer that uh, we found out in court is that it's, it's a little anticlimactic. The doors were left open because they're always left open. Apparently, opening and closing the doors is a bit of a process, so they're just usually left open. Uh, people rely on the interior doors. No one thought to close these doors on January 6th. Now, if they had chosen to close and lock the doors, they would have been the most secure doors at the Capitol. But they didn't. Nobody thought to do that. It's a little unsatisfying, but it is what it is. And just like so many questions of preparedness on January 6th, uh, as far as they were concerned, it was going to be just another day, just an ordinary day with some events, and they largely did whatever it was that they would do on any other ordinary day, which apparently includes leaving the Columbus doors open. Speaking of doors, Kelly Meggs' attorney, Julie Holler, uh, was really on a roll this last past week, uh, continuing to establish herself as firmly on Team Crazy. On Tuesday, she was basically doing defense by internet conspiracy theory, and during cross-examination of former USCP officer Salky, raised the issue of the fire doors that mysteriously opened. You've all seen the videos. This is nothing really mysterious, right? This is an internet rumor that came about because there's video of a set of fire doors that are on a timer. You just have to press and hold the bar for three seconds, and it opens the door. But there are some people who are confused by that. They look up the security cameras, and someone else goes and actually holds it, presses the door for three seconds, and it opens. Again, not rocket science. Um, it's, it's kind of odd. We're, we're like two sets of data points. They're just saying how dumb these people are. Nonetheless, not only were they dumb enough not to understand how fire doors work, but they're dumb enough to not read the signs. And then they're dumb enough to have their defense attorneys introduce this as somehow proof of something that some people opened the doors when, in fact, there's a little sign on the door. That sign is in evidence. Haller knew about that as she was talking about it. This is nothing other than an attempt to use a Chewbacca defense and try to muddy the waters. So, again, I, I mean, again, I, I'm sure that she actually knows this. Maybe she's just that ideologically committed. I don't know, but... She has no problem relying on disinformation-based defense on behalf of her, her client. Um, which, you know, I don't think that's something attorneys are supposed to do, but again, I'm not one. In another development, the schedule of witnesses in the Oath Keepers case has been impacted by COVID-19. Stuart Rhodes has fallen ill with the virus, and so is unable to attend court in person. Now, most notably, this has moved the testimony of Officer Dunn to next week. 
the defense has tried to make the argument that the Oath Keepers moved the Capitol to assist police on January 6th, and so Officer Dunn's testimony, I expect, is going to uh, address this. They have some specific claims to make regarding Officer Dunn. Um, there's a photo in evidence that shows Officer Dunn standing in a place and then a row of Oath Keepers uh, arrayed in front of him. But the only problem here is that those particular Oath Keepers are not these defendants. Moreover, those particular Oath Keepers appear to have no have had no contact with Stuart Rose or anyone in his crew. So they're, you know, what were Stuart Rose and his crew doing at the time? I mean, they were, uh, you know, they had organized themselves into stacks and they were rampaging through the Capitol and calling for Nancy Pelosi and trying to search for Nancy Pelosi with murderous intent. So very much at odds with the claim that the Oath Keepers are trying to make that they were there trying to protect law enforcement. Uh, but that's that's next week. Um, it is a bit interesting. Judge Maida in court says, well, you know, they are going to try to keep um, roads, but uh, there's a 10-day quarantine order. Judge Maida is asking, well, maybe this can get reduced to five days. What I think is going to happen is that no. Um, he's going to have to waive his appearance because the way the... COVID pandemic has played out in the correctional system is that uh, they didn't do enough to address it seriously early on, and people died. Uh, as a consequence, they are being very conservative from here on out with things like quarantine rules. Nobody wants COVID-19 to break out in the courtroom. Marshal Service doesn't want that. The jailers don't want that. And so Meta, you know, he, he wants the trial to go forward. He wants the defendants to be present. But ultimately... You know what? We've gotten used to doing things remotely. And if this defendant, if this Stuart Rhodes, has COVID, nobody wants him bringing it into the courtroom. So, you know, I don't think he's going to override what the people who actually have Rhodes in custody are trying to do because uh, those are those are the rules. They're in place for a reason because people were dying. And especially staff and pretrial inmates, they don't want that happening, right? I mean, they don't want any inmates dying, really. But they certainly don't want COVID coming from inside the jail, outside into the community either, right? So I think that Rhodes is going to be remote for a little bit longer. Finally, let's turn to a little bit of unresolved business from the last episode. The subpoena of Donald Trump by the January 6th committee. According to sources familiar with the matter, the service was accepted by Matthew Cyrilson an attorney with the Dillon Law Group on Trump's behalf. Trump was served earlier this week. Significant, of course, in that we also saw the sentencing of Steve Bannon to four months. So, you know, what happened? Why did that happen? A subpoena from the January 6th committee. And now Trump himself has been served with a subpoena from the January 6th committee. But even before Trump's attorneys accepted the subpoena on behalf of their client, the committee had made it public. So let's take some time with it now and see what we can learn. I think it really gives us a key as to possible future charges against Donald Trump. If you've listened to this, you're listening to this podcast, uh, you've probably read any number of subpoenas by now. And that's good because you can actually use this as a basis to compare and contrast this subpoena with other subpoenas that have been issued by the committee. 
And if you do this, you'll see that this document goes far beyond what the standard uh, subpoenas from the committee even entail. So for comparison purposes, I've attached a subpoena for Steve Bannon in the show notes, even though at this point I might be actually running off characters in the show notes. I have put more documentation in this episode than is, is usual. So this is apparently now a podcast that has assigned reading. Even if you've never clicked on any of the links in the show notes before, I urge you to click on the link for the Donald Trump subpoena. Uh, when you read it, do so with an eye as to what other possible crimes are entailed and possibly described in the document, bearing in mind that this subpoena was drafted with the assistance of experienced federal prosecutors, and the committee already has evidence to support each item in their bullet-pointed list, which reads very similarly to how an indictment would read. Yes, they are asking a series of questions, but these are questions to which they very certainly already have the answers. So the committee begins the subpoena with a pretty gosh darn strong assertion. Quote, As demonstrated in our hearings, we have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power. End quote. So in the context of a House subpoena to a former president, those are powerful words. We are so far beyond Watergate at this point. We're going to have to invent an entirely new nomenclature for presidential scandals because just adding gate to the end of things no longer suffices as Watergate has been eclipsed a thousandfold by the criminal actions of Trump. So there is a bullet-pointed list of... Uh, things that Trump is alleged to have done. But they don't mention these as violations of the federal criminal code. What I'm going to try to do, and again, I'm a political scientist, not an attorney, is to relate these two possible violations of the criminal, criminal code. Now, some of these are actually very sensible and pretty well supported by other cases. Uh, what has been described in some of these uh, bullet points are in fact in line with some charges in some other cases, things that we've already seen charged. I'll get to that in a moment. So 10 things, and I believe that these are 10 separate charges that might be the basis for a criminal referral for Donald Trump. I'm going, I'm going to just say count, even though there's no counts, and in fact the bullet pardons aren't numbered. Count one, purposefully and maliciously disseminating false allegations of fraud related to the 2020 presidential election in order to aid your effort to overturn the election and for purposes of soliciting contributions. What's interesting here, of course, is that they have included the bit about soliciting contributions. This is very similar uh, to the, the, the Bannon case, the we built the wall, right? Um, so that is fraud, theft by deception. Fraud, right? You know, if you're doing something and you're doing it on the basis of a lie, that's fraud. Count two. Attempting to corrupt the Department of Justice, including by soliciting and enlisting department officials to make false statements and aid your effort to overturn the presidential election. So that particular phrase, false statements, uh, puts me in mind of a section of the U.S. Criminal Code 
section 1001, 18 U.S.C. 1001. That's a felony. Making false statements is a felony and is punishable by five years in federal prison. This section reads, quote, and again, this is from the, the code, except as otherwise provided in this section, whoever in any manner within the jurisdiction of the executive, legislative, or judicial branch of the government of the United States knowingly and willf will willfully, one, falsifies, conceals, or covers up any trick, scheme, or device of material fact, two, makes any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or representation, or three, makes or uses any false writing or document knowing the same to contain any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or entry, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for not more than five years. End quote. So again, if you are willfully and knowingly making false statements in the context of your government duties, this is a felony punishable by up to five years. Count three, quote, without any evidentiary basis, illegally pressuring state officials and legislators to change the results of the election in their states, end quote. So this is actually chargeable under a number of different provisions in federal law, but the one that seems most relevant to me, again, political scientist, not an attorney, is 18 U.S.C. Section 595, Interference by Administrative Employees of Federal, State, or Territorial Governments. It makes it a crime to anyone who, quote, uses his official authority for the purpose of interfering with or affecting the nomination or the election of any candidate for the office of president, vice president, presidential elector, member of the Senate, member of the House of Representatives, delegate for, from the District of Columbia, or resident commissioner, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year or both. So that is uh, a different matter from almost everything else uh, on this list is actually a felony. But again, this is, could also be the subject of conspiracy. And again, um, could be there could be additional charges related to this particular offense. Count four, orchestrating and overseeing an effort to obtain and transmit false electoral certificates to Congress and the National Archives. End quote. So we talked about this a bit more uh, than some of the others because this is, of course, the fake elector scheme and it appears to be a case that is rather far along in its development. Um, there is, you know, there's the, the document scheme. That's probably furthest along because they've done a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago, rather unprecedented. And then there's the fake elector scheme. I think these are the cases that are probably most likely to generate charges first. So uh, here's the relevant section from the code. Section 371, quote, If two or more persons conspire to either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose, and one or more of such persons do any act to affect the object of the conspiracy, each shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than five years. So this is going to be a felony, right? So I mean, it's the presidency of the United States. That's a thing of great value. Um, and again, pretty pretty clear that you know the fake elector scheme is an instance of fraud. 
they drew up fake documents. Count five. Despite knowing specifically that it was illegal, corruptly pressuring your own vice president to unilaterally refuse to count electoral votes during Congress's joint session on January 6th. End quote. Now, this could be criminal intimidation. When you look at the evidence that the committee has submitted in its hearings, especially the tweet at 2.24 p.m. on January 6th, it's not unreasonable to conclude that Trump was threatening Pence. Um, I think it's also possible that this is covered under 18 U.S.C. Section 876, Mailing Threatening Communications. Whoever, with the intent to extort from any person any money or any other thing of value, the presidency, for example, so deposits or causes to be delivered, as aforesaid, any communication containing any threat to kidnap any person or any threat to injure the person of the addressee or another shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So, again, the 224 tweet could be a criminal threat. Count six, pressuring members of Congress to object to valid slates of, valid slates of electors from several states. Now, um, yeah, this again could be charged under 18 U.S.C. 876. I mean, so for example, there's this, this has actually been uncovered, undercovered, I think, part of the conspiracy, uh, but certainly the members of the committee, especially Liz Cheney, probably have a lot of information uh, about the efforts to pressure members of Congress to object to the valid slates of electors. Um, and of course, you know, you literally had, as a form of their pressure campaign, uh, people looking for Nancy Pelosi uh, to, you know, uh, possibly execute her on January 6th, right? So, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you could cons constitute pressure here. Count seven, filing false information under oath in federal court. Uh, they could issue an arrest warrant for this one tomorrow, honestly. Multiple counts. If you look at all the, the court cases involving... Uh, election fraud disinformation, and so many of these involve false statements. So, yeah, that's, you know. There's also 18 U.S.C. Section 101, of course, and again, uh, a felony punishable by up to five years in prison, right? Um, committing fraud, perjury, these are, these are things that are, are taken uh, seriously by the federal courts. All right, so the next three set of potential charges are things that I think may present the weakest cases uh, insofar as they um, are the most obvious charges, in a sense. And so Trump inserted multiple layers of plausible deniability between himself and answering to these charges. Nonetheless, I believe they are, you know, potentially the most serious charges, and they will have to address these ultimately, I believe, in any criminal referral that the committee may make to the Department of Justice. Count nine, summoning tens of thousands of supporters to Washington and, knowing they were angry and some were armed, sending them to the Capitol. End quote. So if proved, this count could lead to the same kinds of charges that we've seen against the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and seditious conspiracy, opposing an act of government by force. There's always a chance that the committee may actually have some evidence of direct links and communication 
between Trump personally and figures such as Stone, Bannon, and Flynn that might help bolster uh, some kind of seditious conspiracy case and or obstruction of an official proceeding case. Count 9. Sending a social media message to the nation at 2.24 p.m. while knowing full well that a violent attack on the Capitol was occurring in which you incited further violence by publicly condemning your vice presidents. End quote. Now, the phrase here, incite violence, is key. So this is, uh, they already mentioned that tweet, basically, but here, inciting violence leads me to believe that they're looking at a different charge, 18 U.S.C., Section 371. Quote, whoever, with intent that another person engage in conduct constituting a felony that has an element, that has as an element, the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against property or against the person of another in violation of the laws of the United States, and under, under circumstances strongly cooperative of that intent, solicits, commands, induces, or otherwise endeavors to persuade such other person to engage in such conduct, shall be imprisoned not more than one-half of the maximum term of imprisonment, or, notwithstanding Section 3571, find not more than one-half the maximum fine prescribed for the punishment of the crime solicited. So, that would be another felony. And this seems to be, I think, a little bit more easy to prove than the other two charges I'm including in this category of more plausibly deniable uh, crimes here. Uh, Trump's 224 tweet was an obvious incitement to violence, uh, particularly in the context of an ongoing assault on the place where the vice president was. Um, the committee has paid a lot of attention to this question in the hearings. And so, yeah. It can also be charged under uh, 18 U.S.C. 2101, which makes inciting a riot uh, felony punishable by up to five years. So they have different options with regard to how to charge the tweet. Count 10. Refusing for hours to disband your, riot, disband your rioting supporters by instructing them to leave the Capitol while you watch the attack unfold on television. End quote. So as written, this is a failure to act on Trump's part, and I, I mean that in a legal sense. There are circumstances under the law when failure to act can be charged. There are a number of ways that this could be charged. Uh, I think this is a defense that they're looking to charge because they've consistently played up his failure to act component in, in all the hearings, rather consistency. So it could be charged uh, perhaps as a civil rights violation, um, which would be a felony. I'm not sure this is actually the relevant section, uh, but charging someone with a failure to act when they had a duty with act is, is not within, that's not within my scope of expertise. Not sure I found the, the right, uh, chargeable section here. But, um, what's kind of interesting is that if they do wind up doing some kind of civil rights-based case on this failure to act, depriving people of their civil rights. Um, it would actually tie in, or potentially, with the ongoing uh, lawsuit in Trump et al. v. Sorry, Smith et al. v. Trump et al. Now, this is where the officers and these various plaintiffs, members of Congress, are suing Trump, the Oath Keepers, and the Proud Boys. It's a civil case. But again, as we've seen in so many of these cases, the, the discoveries intertwined, 
the relevant facts are intertwined, and the personnel are often intertwined. Now that case has been assigned to Judge Maida, and I, I just want to highlight it here for a moment because I do think that it's flown a little under the radar. Part of the reason why it's kind of um, left the discussion is that Maida, on the 30th of September, issued an order staying the case in Trump et al., Smith et al. v. Trump et al. until the outcome of U.S. v. Rhodes. Rhodes is a named defendant in the civil case, and so Maida's in court on all this, says, interest of justice, we're going we're to, um, you know, have a stay on this case until the outcome of these seditious conspiracy cases. So there's this kind of weird legal convergence. You have a civil case in which Trump is a named defendant in the same court as a criminal prosecution uh, where one of those named civil defendants is also included as a criminal defendant and you also have this subpoena from the committee that is relevant to both of these defendants. So Smith v. Trump is, you know, something that I think we could hear more about pending the outcome of the Oath Keepers case, or at least probably, you know, the first, if not the second, Oath Keepers case. So the subpoena covers both testimony and documentary evidence. Crucially, uh, executive privilege claims don't apply to these documentary claims. So that's why you remember Mark Meadows complied, at least partially, with the uh, so the information that the committee wanted in their initial subpoena request. All right. So what do they? What specifically do they ask for? Um, the committee is looking for some things that I think uh, also shed light on what kind of charges they might eventually make in a criminal referral. Quote, the subpoena calls for testimony regarding dealings with multiple individuals who have now themselves invoked their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination regarding their communications with you, including Roger Stone, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, U.S. Army retired, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, and Kelly Ward. These Fifth Amendment assertions made by persons with whom you interacted, related directly to you and your conduct. They provide specific examples where your truthful testimony under oath will be important. End quote. So, again, this is part of laying the, the uh, legal framework for the uh, legal challenges to this subpoena that are inevitably going to arise. And, you know... They're arguing, well, if you've got all these people claiming the Fifth Amendment, yes, we can't draw an inference about their guilt. On the other hand, it doesn't make the person they're communicating with look all that great. And that's why we need to talk to them. This, look, if Trump were innocent, he would welcome it, right? He would submit the documentary evidence. He would go in and he would talk. So, you know, it's a pretty good argument. We'll see how that winds up playing out in court. Now, some of the specific things that they ask Trump for point to various chargeable offenses, such as the effort to install Jeff Clark in the Department of Justice and the fake elector scheme. Here's another thing they want. Quote, This subpoena hereby orders the production of relevant documentary material as set forth on the attached schedule by November 4th, 2022, followed by your participation in one or more days of deposition testimony beginning on or about November 14th, 
2022 and continuing on subsequent days as necessary. The deposition will be under oath and will be led by the professional staff of the Select Committee, including multiple former federal prosecutors as well as members. End quote. Now, there's no real reason to point out why the questioning will be led by federal, uh, former federal prosecutors, but I, I love the fact that they do. And take note of that date, right? You've got the documentary request, which is before the election, and then Trump himself on the 14th. So clearly, after the election, when a criminal referral of Donald John, Don Trump from the committee is a thing that they could actually do, and a thing that the Department of Justice could actually act upon. Now, I'd like to point out that these document requests outlined as a subpoena are very specific, and they relate to persons that have been identified by the committee and to targets of ongoing criminal investigations. So my supposition here is that there's so much specificity with regard to the documents requested that you can assume they are asking for things that they actually know exist. Um, signal chats figure very prominently in what they are asking for. And if they have access to devices of persons with whom these communications were held, it's possible that they have some of this. And so Trump's failure to produce this is something that they could know about and then charge obstruction. So here's another quote. Quote, for the period from September 1st, 2020, to the present, all documents, including communications sent or received through Signal or any other means, relating or referring in any way to the Oath Keepers or any members, the Proud Boys or any members. End quote. Okay. So they may have reason to believe that Trump was communicating directly with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Again, that would mean that he would be vulnerable to charges of sedition, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to commit seditious conspiracy, and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Now, the September date also, again, shows that the committee has the same understanding of the efforts to thwart the peaceful transfer of power that's already been developed in the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys cases. So even before the election, right? So you've got that whole Roger Stone meeting in September of 2020, possibly also tied into this. The subpoena also specifically requests any documents related to the planning of the rallies, any communications with persons involved with these, any information regarding the fake elector scheme, the pressure campaign on state officials to overturn election results, anything related to the activities of the Department of Justice, everything related to the scheme to get Pence to unilaterally overturn the election certification proceedings, and anything, quote, relating or referring in any way to Representative Scott Perry or any other member of Congress, end quote. Uh, related to January 6th, all documents from November 3rd, 2020 through January 6th, 2021 that are, quote, relating or referring in any way to efforts to encourage or summon individuals to travel to Washington, D.C. on January 6th for events related to the 2020 presidential election, the joint session, or the rally on the ellipse, end quote. So they want all the things, right? They want all the things, and those are the the exactly the places, exactly the people that, you know, by name, Scott Perry, right, that we would want. 
And there's also this very specific list of additional persons. Roger Stone, Stephen Bannon, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, U.S. Army retired, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Rudolph Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Cheesebro, Boris Epstein, Christina Bob, Cleta Mitchell, or Patrick Byrne. Now note that this is not an alphabetical list. It is an implicit org chart of the insurrection itself, and it's the same people, largely, as were identified by Cheney at the conclusion of the last committee hearing. They also asked very specifically for any documents related to the activities of the committee itself to include documents related to witnesses. Uh, again, we know about the possible witness tampering claims uh, regarding Cassidy Hutchinson. So they're going out. Know, Trump is, is being asked about that. I suspect they have rather good evidence on that count, and that is something that we're seeing, you know, also fly a bit below the radar. They also want, quote, any communications regarding directly or indirectly paying the legal fees for any such witnesses or finding, offering, or discussing employment for any such witnesses and any communications with your former Deputy Chief of Staff, Anthony Ornato, or any employee of the Secret Service with whom you interacted on January 6, 2021. End quote. Holy cow, right? So you've got the potential here of more witness tampering. You've got the potential of him offering jobs to people uh, or, you know, paying their legal bills uh, to, you know, what? Obstruct justice? Obstruct Congress? Commit perjury? Uh, to buy their silence, basically? So that's, again, another chargeable offense. They also want all the documents related to the fundraising from the stolen election claims. Again, uh, the theft by deception. And they want any documents relating to the destruction of documents. I don't think they're going to get that one. I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, that is one where if you're documenting your destruction of documents, um, why wouldn't you also destroy those documents? So, who knows? But uh, maybe they have some reason to believe that there's documentary evidence of the destruction of documents. So they have asked for the, all the documents that have been requested to be sent to the address, uh, 1540A Longworth House Office Building, DC 20515, and they want it by November 4th at 10 a.m. So get busy. I hope those lawyers are busy searching down all those documents. Uh, the reality is, of course, that they're, they're going to go ahead with uh, legal challenges, but I suspect if they don't comply soon, the committee is also going to go ahead with their own legal process. So what we're seeing here is the opposite of a fishing expedition, right? They know what they're asking for, and they know what they would charge in a possible criminal referral. And they may have some of this material already from other sources. So if Trump obstructs justice, boom, that is yet another offense. So there's no question, of course, Trump is going to try to stonewall. The real question is what the committee is going to do about it, right? Do they move ahead with a criminal referral on these possible 10 charges? Do they wait for various privilege, privilege claims to be resolved through the courts? Now, historically, we would say yes, right? Historically, consistent with what the committee has done in the past, um, 
they're they're going to wait for all that stuff to play out in court. Who knows? The the funny thing here is that a criminal referral to the Justice Department um, costs them nothing here. So they might just go ahead and offer a criminal referral on all the counts that they have asked about because they've got evidence from other sources and they just have to have asked Trump about all these possible criminal charges. All right. Well, there's going to be a rather lengthy list of uh, links in the show notes. As always, uh, thank you for your listenership. Again, midterm elections, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, I know you're probably a voter, so uh, please go vote. Uh, knock on doors. The number one thing you can do uh, is to be face-to-face with voters, right? Face-to-face interaction increases the likelihood of voting uh, very greatly. And so if you can knock on people's doors, canvassing, it's more useful than, than texting and phone banking. I know a lot of people like to do those. Uh, unfortunately, we live in the cell phone age. People don't pick up their phones anymore, but they still will answer the door. So if you see something, say something, stay safe. And um, I think we're all looking forward to what may or may not happen uh, following this election. <laughs>